electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange, and here's what's ahead. One of Wall Street's biggest hedge fund managers, Paul Tudor Jones, says a big rally is coming as soon as the next COVID bill passes, though it may not be until the first part of next year. Should you get invested now or wait, we'll ask. Plus, Goldman Sachs says a bull market is emerging for commodities. Why and where should investors place their bets? We'll ask Jeff Curry about that ahead. And Quibi calls it quits. Consumers are sitting on a lot of cash. And can Intel prove it's still a contender to be the chip king? That's all ahead today, but let's start with the markets this hour. Dom Chu here for that. Hi, Dom. All right, so all that cash that some of the investors out there are sitting on might be earning some more interest these days because of rising interest rates. We'll get to that in just one moment. But markets for stocks overall, fairly stable, we'll call it. Fractional gains and losses all day. For the S&P 500 specifically, you can see they're up about four points. At the highs of the day, we were up 11 handles. At the lows, just down 20. So you can see fairly stable. The Nasdaq underperforming today, off by about one quarter of 1%. Speaking of those interest rates, Long-term ones in the U.S., specifically tied to the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, ticking higher, have been short-term for quite some time here. Now, it's important, 85 basis points or 0.85%. We are sitting right below a longer-term trend line called the 200-day moving average or average price for yields coming down. The last time we ticked above that level, that 200-day average yield, was back in December of 2018. That's why some traders are paying attention. But that 10-year note yield and rising rates is playing out in several parts of the market. Two in particular I want to call your attention to. What's happening right now with banks and home builders? Check out home builders. Great existing home sales numbers. Big gains there. Why are the housing stocks down? Rising interest rates might play into that story. D.R. Horton off 3.5%. Lennar down 4.5%. Meanwhile, banks like Money Centers, J.P. Morgan Chase up 3%, and Zion's Bank Corp on a regional bank side up 6%. Watch those interest rates. They could be a huge driving force, Kelly, behind a lot of trends in the coming days, weeks, and months. Back over to you. Absolutely, for sure, Don. Thank you, sir. These markets are also in a stimulus holding pattern for now, but investing titan Paul Tudor Jones sees a huge move to the upside as soon as we get that next round of COVID relief. Here's what he said about it on Squawk Box. You're going to have, at some point in the first quarter next year, you're going to have a big move to the upside from whatever level that might be uh, as people get cash from this first stimulus program and they deploy that in a variety of financial assets, which could be stocks and bonds. So it's going to be really tricky. I could easily see a situation where the market sells off into year end, and then you have that typical beginning of the year rally that might ramp all the way through the, the end of the first, certainly into the mid part of the first quarter. So let's talk stocks, rates, and more with Erlena Hernandez. She's principal at GenTrust. And Jim Karen is global fixed income portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Welcome to you both. Elena, I'll start with you. If this upside is coming on COVID relief, is that a, a reason for investors to be in the market right now? Or are you saying be wary because of the election volatility we could have, which uh, Tudor Jones also warned about? 
Sure. Thank you for having me again. Um, I actually don't completely agree with that statement. We still have a lot of uncertainties in the market, one being um, when the fiscal stimulus bill will be passed, right? We know at some point between now and February it could be passed, but we don't know when and how big it would be to make that statement. Um, two, I also think we need to pay close attention to what's going to happen with the path of the economy with all the increase that we've had in cases of COVID and people are going to have the confidence to go back, spend, et cetera, especially when we don't have a fiscal right. stimulus bill. Um, so that's why we're staying um, a little bit of underweight in equities, not so much because of elections per se, but because of all these uncertainties that are still in the markets. Right. But I know you guys do like uh, some of the, we're going to talk more about this in a moment, but some of the areas of commodities, real assets, gold, inflation-linked bonds, you know, things that might benefit from a reflation move kind of longer term. Jim, on that note, let me bring you in and circle back to what Dom was just saying about interest rates. I mean, people are paying attention. The 10-year, I think, is approaching its 200-day moving average around 87 basis points. Is it significant to you if we cross above that level? Yeah, you know, it is. But look, I mean, I think with the expectation of fiscal stimulus, it's not a question of if but when it actually occurs, then I, I think there's going to be natural for yields to start to move higher. I mean, look, 2020 is a bad year. We have negative growth. 2021 it should be a very positive year because it's a rebound year from 2021. On top of that, you're going to get pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus. And what that's going to do is it's going to give an increased boost to potential growth going forward. So that could potentially, if the growth impulse is strong enough, it could even bring forward the first rate hike. Now, we don't expect there to be a rate hike until 2024, maybe even later than that. But the point is, is that if the growth impulse is big enough, that could certainly happen. So we need to unpack this in a lot manner. What drives 10-year yields? Policy rates, growth expectations, inflation expectations, and term premia. Right now, what we're seeing, we know, we pretty much think we know what the growth impulse is going to be. We can estimate what that is. Policy, the Fed is telling us, right. inflation is still relatively low. So what's driving yields the most right now is this expectation and this uncertainty around what kind of a fiscal impulse we're going to have and will that drive yields higher. So I think the market and people, bond, bond investors, are hedging their bets and they're saying that 2020 was about rates moving lower, 2020 might be about a drift up higher, and 10-year Treasury yields could get up to 1.2, 1.25% over the next couple of quarters. With stronger growth, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, it, it's interesting to hear your point of view about how we could keep moving higher in this range. Yesterday, we spoke with Samir Samano, who said he would be a buyer of treasuries here, you know, after the recent backup that we've seen. I know there's a lot of people who feel that way, who feel that they've made more money uh, on the fixed income side of things. Elena, if we do kind of see, so it's interesting that even as we're talking about how unlikely it is that we get a, a relief bill anytime soon, that the prospect that it's out there in the next six months seems to be driving bond yields higher and certain stocks higher and it's already being priced in, um, is it going to hurt the stock market at some point to see yields continue to, to move up, or does it just hurt certain parts of the market? Sure. I think it all depends on what we get, both in the terms of, of the fiscal stimulus bill. I agree it's a matter of if and, you know, uh, it's a matter of when, I'm sorry, not if, and also the election results, right? Um, elections are coming up depending if we, you know, indeed, as the polls are telling us, get a Biden administration and also get uh, the, the Senate potentially to be a Democratic Senate. 
um, when we look at the Biden administration's plan in terms of increasing taxes, not only personal, but also on the corporate side, as well as investments in infrastructure, clean energy, healthcare, and a potential bigger fiscal stimulus bill, right, in the case that we wait until election and, and they're the victorious ones, that would all help us determine what's going to happen really with the stock market. All right. Final last uh, quick word on this, Jim. You, you don't think we have, like, sustained inflation coming, do you? No, not at all. I, I think that demand is, is, is really low. It's going to take a while for demand to really resurge. And that's the only thing to me that's going yeah. to really push inflation higher. I think the fiscal spending is really just offsetting the shortfall of demand. So that's not, a, that's not an immediate worry. Yeah, kind of filling the hole right now and not necessarily building a mountain yet or something like that. Uh, guys, thank you both very much today. Really appreciate your thoughts. Jim Karen, Elena Hernandez on these markets. Well, we were just mentioning some of the commodities. The pandemic has crashed demand for them this year, and prices have been underperforming, although oil has been gaining some traction lately. Both West Texas crude and Brent are up about 2% today, in fact, hovering around that $40 mark for WTI. Still, they're down about 30% this year. But my next guest is bullish on oil, as well as copper, gold, and silver, and says we could see a big move to the upside for a lot of commodities next year. Joining me is Jeff Curry. He's Goldman Sachs head of global commodity research. Jeff, it's good to have you. So kind of if, rattle off if you could all the commodities that you specifically think stand to benefit here. Well, when you look at the inventories across the entire commodity complex, it's easier to give you the number that are not bullish. Coffee, cocoa, and iron ore are the only commodities that are not in a deficit right now. Um, and that's really rare given where we are in the current cycle. I mean, we were in a trough of a recession six months ago, um, yet we have every single market in a deficit with the exception of those three that I just rattled off, which underscores the structural underinvestment in supply that we have. As you, as you just mentioned, demand across most of these markets is tepid. Even in oil, it's tepid, which underscores supply is really the driving um, you know, source here. That's interesting. And I, I should give you a hat tip because back in the spring when oil went to minus 30 a barrel, there was a big debate about whether it would keep going negative or not. And I remember you coming on this program and saying, you know, no, that you thought the supply and demand situation was going to push us back up into positive territory and, you know, to the 30s ultimately. And that's exactly what happened. So sticking with oil for a moment, where do you think we're going from here on WTI, which has huge implications for a lot more of the deal activity that we may or may not see into next year? Well, when you look at the non-energy commodities, you want to be long them right now today, particularly the investment goods like copper and the rest of them, because they have very strong demand that's being driven by a lot of these policies directed at infrastructure projects. In contrast, when you look at oil, the demand is still really weak, which means it'll probably trade sideways until you whittle down that inventory overhang. Right now, there's about 800 million barrels of excess inventory that needs to be worked through. We think the earliest you can work through that is by the end of this coming winter, which means sometime like second quarter of next year, which is when you can tactically start to see real upside in oil. Our target at the, you know, going into the second half of next year is $65 a barrel, which is really far from here. But I do want to emphasize don't get too excited yet because you still have that 800 million barrels that you need to work through. What's driving that tepid demand is the loss of jet fuel demand, um, which means you either need a vaccine or get rapid testing in there and get people back into the sky.
Yeah. So basically you're saying, if I heard you right, you said you can buy pretty much all the non-energy commodities right now, you know, that it's oil that has this particular supply overhang, but everyone else is pretty well positioned. In fact, reading from your note, you say, we recommend long positions across silver, copper, jet regrade, Brent, U.S. gas, and gold. Um, I mean, which is why you're recommending the broad commodity basket. But so this is fundamentally a demand recovery story. Is that right? And is it predicated on anything that has to do with the election outcome or another round of COVID relief? Um, no, it actually, I, I would argue it's not predicated on a demand recovery because in the non-energy commodities, you already have a demand there. What it's really predicated on is the structural underinvestment in supply. Um, you know, this is a story very similar to what we talked about 20 years ago. We called it the revenge of the old economy then. It's the same story. The new economy has siphoned off too much capital that would otherwise go into these old economy industries. Then you layer on top of that ESG concerns, the ability to raise capital from either debt or equity is really difficult right now. And, you know, that's why we argue you have to go all the way to 65 because these uh, producers are going to have to drill out of cash flow, something they haven't had to do for decades. Wow, the revenge of the old economy. I want, I want a reprisal of that. <laughs> Come on and talk more about it. Jeff, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. We, it's just always good to thanks get some historical me. point of view. Jeff Curry of Goldman talking about how the setup for commodities looks into next year. Coming up, the polls would suggest President Trump is headed for a defeat this November. But my next guest says there are four big variables that could spell a surprise win, and they have nothing to do with a vaccine or stimulus. Plus, Goldman Sachs agrees to pay the biggest ever fine in a corporate criminal bribery case. We've got the latest on this developing story when we're back in just a couple. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back with some breaking news. Goldman Sachs agreeing to pay nearly $3 billion in its role in that international IMDb scandal. Wilfred Frost is here with all the breaking details. Shares hanging on to a 1% gain, Wolf. Yeah, Kelly, uh, Goldman Sachs, <clears throat> excuse me, Goldman Sachs uh, agreeing to pay an additional $2.6 billion in fines for the 1MDB scandal to regulators in the US, the UK, Hong Kong and Singapore. It follows uh, a $1.5 billion payment uh, to Malaysian authorities already. The stock, as you said, higher by about a percent uh, because most of that additional 2.6 has already been provided for around about 250 million of extra provisions needed, but not the full amount. The settlement will also say uh, that pay uh, has been given up by past and present uh, executives. Current leaders, including CEO David Solomon, COO John Waldron, CFO jo Stephen Scher, and head of international Richard Noddy, uh, will forego future pay. Past executives including former CEO Lloyd Blankfein, will return past pay. Some of these executives are doing so voluntarily. There is no suggestion they knew anything about the wrongdoing at the time, but uh, the clawbacks are more of a sign of acknowledging that they were at the helm 
at the time that key things uh, occurred below them. The total uh, amount of pay being given up is $174 million. Uh, here is the uh, breakdown. Three individuals who are implicated in this scheme criminally account for 76 million of that four current executives i just listed are 31 million dollars of that and five former executives including lloyd blankfein account for 67 million dollars of that as it relates uh, to uh, gary Cohn, the former coo and former head of the uh, national economic council uh, i believe according to a source that this line in goldman sachs's uh, release relates to him the firm is in active discussion with another of these retired senior executives who also already received the 2011 award about returning the majority of it uh, as well. Uh, yet to confirm that aspect, that, though. Uh, Goldman Sachs' Malaysian entity is pleading guilty to one count of conspiracy to violate Foreign Corrupt Practices Act as part of this. Uh, as you said, though, Kelly, uh, seems some of this uh, size of settlement is priced in the stocks higher today. So many things about this, Wilf, are interesting, especially those executives returning comp from an some cases almost a decade ago, millions of dollars that, I mean, apparently they still have lying around. So putting that aside, some of the headlines here in the context say that this is the largest uh, settlement or fine ever in a corporate criminal bribery case. Um, another interesting little nugget, Goldman submitted to the Labor Department uh, an application to maintain its status as a qualified professional asset manager. You know, is this the end of the road now for Goldman and this 1MDB scandal? Um, and what was the worst case they could have faced in terms of other kind of criminal um, charges that could have come from the government? Yeah, I think the worst case could have been direct criminal charges to some of those senior executives outside of the three names, uh, as I mentioned, who are already kind of facing those criminal charges. It seems to have stopped short of that. Uh, in terms of financial settlement, you know, who knows how big it could have been, but uh, the fact that it totals now with the Malaysian settlement and this additional payment, uh, you know, just over $4 billion, under $5 billion, uh, ultimately allows them to draw a line under it without having to do huge extra provisions that would uh, hurt their capital ratios. Uh, and with that, uh, hurt their share price. I mean, the other kind of maybe not worst case scenario, but would have been negative for them would be not to get this sorted before the election, a possible change of government. And, and with that, having to start things all over again, potentially, if, if the DOJ uh, sort of decided to start afresh with a new administration, uh, they've avoided that. And uh, I think that's partly why you're seeing the stock higher. Yep, up 1% still. Well, thanks so much for bringing us those headlines. Wilfred Frost, Let's move now to Washington and take a look at these two big numbers. First, 12. That's how many days are left until the election right now. Also, 297. That's how many days we've been in this pandemic. Now, as the first number gets smaller, so does the chance for more COVID relief before the election. Elon Moy joins me now with where things stand in Washington at this hour. Elon? Well, Kelly, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Treasury Secretary will keep trying to hash out this deal today as Pelosi signals some more progress in the talks. They still haven't completely signed off on it, but I think we're just about there, <clears throat> that we will allocate, again, the resources and the uh, uh, policies necessary to do that. We're just about there. That is one of the most optimistic descriptions she's given of these discussions so far. But Pelosi also still said some of the biggest issues have not yet been addressed. State and local funding, the census, liability protections, and even in areas where they do agree, like schools, there is still work to do. However, Pelosi says she believes the negotiations are serious and that the president does want a deal, 
even though he tweeted this yesterday saying, just don't see any way Nancy Pelosi and crying Chuck Schumer will be willing to do what is right for our great American workers or our wonderful USA itself on stimulus. Their primary focus is bailing out poorly run and high crime Democrat cities and states. Kelly Pelosi did say that the end of the negotiations are often the hardest part. Back to you. Fair enough. Elon, we appreciate the update. Thank you very much, Elon Moy. The window of opportunity is narrowing on a stimulus deal, although, again, before the election, maybe it just happens afterwards. Uh, but it would also be a chance for President Trump, if it happened, to tout his economic record in his reelection bid. My next guest there, my next guest says there are still four variables that could mean a Trump victory. They have nothing to do with stimulus or even vaccines. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Chris Kruger. He's a strategist at Cowan Washington Research Group. Chris, it's good to have you. And, you know, listen, everybody remembers 2016 when the conventional wisdom in the polls pointed one way and the president pulled out a surprise win. What are you telling clients about the possibility for him to repeat that this time around when it looks like his odds are even slimmer? Well, it's, you know, it's 2020. Um, really, uh, nothing could uh, should surprise us at this point. I think one of the, the biggest variable here is we've had almost 50 million ballots already cast. That's about a third of the 2016 overall total. The, you know, and historically, voting by mail absentee ballots have a much higher disqualification rate. You know, people fill mm -hmm. them out incorrectly, et cetera. So just that issue alone should, should give you know, folks pause, I think, um, and the, the counts are going to take a long time. Even a state like Pennsylvania cannot process the ballots until November 3rd. Um, so, I mean, if, if, you know, a state like North Carolina or Florida is called early for, for Biden, that's game over. But if these states right. uh, stay close, uh, we could well be, you know, um, further downfield before we know uh, the outcome of the election. Yeah, I mean, it's not just Pennsylvania. There's six big states. I think Michigan is another one where they can't begin counting the mail-in ballots until Election Day, drawing this out like you suggested. But it's one thing for the outcome to be drawn out. It's another thing for Trump to win against what seems like odds pointing in Biden's favor at this point. So I'm curious what else you think could drive a surprise victory for him. Um, you mentioned, you know, obviously some ballots could get thrown out if they're incorrectly filled out. What about polling failures, shy Trump voters, GOP registration, three other areas you think people should keep their eyes on? Yeah, you know, the big one is the Republican, in the, over the last four years, Republicans in a handful of the key states, uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, and North Carolina, have registered more voters than Democrats have. Um, and, you know, these are states where, you know, the election could come down to, you know, 10,000 vote margins the way Michigan did in, in 2016. Um, now, Arizona is a, is a bright spot for Democrats on the registration numbers. And, you know, just because you're registered doesn't mean you're, you're voting, right? The, ultimately, that, that will uh, over-index with, with registration numbers. But on those registration numbers in a couple of those key states, uh, Republicans have uh, outworked Democrats. You obviously have the potential for you know, polling problems. It would be on a scale in excess of even 1948 uh, with uh, Harry Truman defeating Dewey. Um, hmm. And then there's obviously, you know, the, the story of 2016, the, the shy Trump voter. What is that actual number? Is it the delta between uh, Trump's approval rating on the economy, which tends to be around 50 percent, and his 
Uh, overall approval, which is 44%, you know, is it 600 basis points? You know, I, I don't know, um, but I think that's right. another area that, you know, uh, people should um, should keep in the back of their mind. And finally, is it as goes the presidency, so goes the Senate, you think? Or, or what is the possible outcome here? Uh, if the president wins, so the GOP may also pull out the Senate win, or, or could it be split? What do you think? It could be. It could be split. I mean, I think in reality, we're not going to know the the uh, the margin until January fifth. Georgia has two Senate races, and uh, Georgia law states that if no candidate receives fifty percent plus one of the vote, the top two candidates will go to a runoff. That won't be until January fifth. Hmm. Uh, you also have a number of races that um, that you know, on the uh, on the West Coast or the other time zones, whether it's Montana or Alaska, which are going to take a long time to count. Um, so I don't think we will know the, the overall Senate margin until January, but it's most, a lot of the key Senate races indexed to the big electoral college states. So, you know, North Carolina, wow. Iowa, um, and then Maine and Montana, I'd probably put as the other two sort of ultimate bellwethers for for the Senate control. I, I don't know if I can handle it, Chris, if it's going to be months of uncertainty of, you know, wondering what's going to be the outcome for the Senate, what's going to be out, the outcome for the presidency. Um, it's just going to be a, another suspended limbo like we've been in uh, in 2020 in so many other ways. Uh, but and great it, points. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, Go ahead. You know, I was, until until this, there's not really a forcing mechanism on the elections until December 14th when the uh, the Electoral College meets in the state capitals. So, you know, it, it you know, six, six weeks or so uh, where we, we could be uh, uh, flying a little bit blind. Waiting in suspense. Chris Kruger from uh, Cowan Washington Research Group, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. 11 days to go and another debate tonight. Coming up, consumers have more free cash than you might think, and that could be bullish for a number of stocks. We've got that story. Plus, Intel is looking to convince investors it can still be a leader in the chip world as its stock lags. We'll look at what it'll take to win Wall Street's love back with earnings on deck tonight. Stay with us. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back. We've got a market flash on Gap. Its shares are jumping higher. Dom Chu brings us the story, Dom. All right. So that big intraday move in shares of Gap, like you said, Kelly, the retailers investor day is going on right now. And executives are discussing some plans to close approximately 30 percent of their Gap and Banana Republic brand 
locations by the end of fiscal year 2023. Well, that's one of the driving forces. Also interesting, the company aims to have approximately 80% of its total revenues coming strictly online and from off-mall locations. Now, for context, last quarter, Gap saw e-commerce sales, remember, grow 95%. It said it gained about 3.5 million new customers through those online channels. So, Kelly, obviously a very big shift for a retailer that's been a mall staple for decades. It seems to be moving the stock. We'll send things back over to you. Investors like the sound of it. Shares back over 20 bucks down. Thanks. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. According to a deposition released earlier today, British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell said under oath in 2016 she had never witnessed inappropriate underage activities by the late financier Jeffrey Epstein, but said, quote, I am not addressing any questions about consensual adult sex, end quote. Maxwell is in a Brooklyn jail after the judge in her criminal case called her an unacceptable flight risk. New research by the University of Arizona suggests the risk of contracting COVID on a plane may, in fact, be very low. This new research involves spreading a live virus throughout a plane. With masks on, fewer than 1% of the particles actually made their way into another passenger's breathing zone, and 99.97% were filtered out of the cabin within six minutes. And data, according to new data from Clutch, which is a ratings and reviews firm, more than half of American employees do not believe their company has successfully created diversity in 2020. And nearly two-thirds of people of color surveyed say the level of diversity at their company affects their ability to succeed. You are up to date. That's the news update, Kel. I'll send it back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Sue. We appreciate it. Coming up, Quibi's short videos were very short-lived. Lots of demand for the new Hummer. Align Technologies was well-aligned with teens and moms, and Airbnb flexes its design muscle. It's coming up in rapid fire right after this. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Julia Borston, Michael Santoli, and Deirdre Bosa all join me. Welcome, guys. First up, Quibi calling it quits, the streaming service shutting down after just six months uh, of its launch. And this was despite raising a ton of dough and getting lots of early buzz. Here are founders Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman on Squawk Alley earlier. We tried many different things, many different product and packaging models. We changed our marketing. We um, changed the the app around many different times. But it was clear that, uh, for whatever reason, this was not going to be as successful as Jeffrey and I had hoped. I think all you can do, uh, all we can do, is own it. You know, we are so appreciative of the opportunity to go pursue this really, really big idea. Uh, For sure, you know, there was risk involved in it. But... I think all of us expected uh, a much better outcome. Julia, you spoke with them earlier. What's your takeaway? I think, Kelly, this was radical honesty from two people who are used to winning, used to succeeding, and this failed. And they explained all the reasons why. It was a combination of launching during COVID, but also making some wrong calls about things like not making it easy to share the content on Quibi on social. They should have made the content on Quibi available on TV sooner. And maybe they were just spending too much per minute of content. So really a confluence of factors here. But I personally found it refreshing to hear such honesty about those missteps. 
And Mike, I also find it refreshing that, you know, not everything that wealthy people throw their money at pans out. I mean, it was always going to be interesting to see if it could match the hype uh, that was going into it. And it, it's just for for as obvious and easy as the success of Netflix and Disney Plus and some of these things seem, this is a reminder. It's it's not always yeah. that easy. It's hard. No, as much as you saw, you know, the use case, you saw the market they were going after and it was audacious and, and certainly high cost and risky. But every other competitor they were going up against has not done it this way, building it from scratch without being subsidized by another business. Even Netflix, it was in the DVD rental business for yeah. a long time. So I do think that was another one of the lessons. And threshold for success was enormously high. They got half a million people to sign up in a few months. That's not nothing, but they needed millions more. Right. The last final word, Deirdre. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of when WeWork went bust spectacularly last year. I mean, today was an example of how startups maybe should go out, admit their mistakes, have their founders, CEOs come on TV and say, we thought one thing and it went another way instead of media leaking things and not ever hearing from the founder again. So in that sense, I found it a bit refreshing. Yeah, and I'm sure investors, look, they returned like $350 million of the nearly $2 billion they raised just realizing it wasn't going anywhere. So it's not even like they ran out of cash. They just saw the writing on the wall. It's a fascinating one. You know, you're going to see it in case studies for a, for a long, long time. But let's move on to talk about some uh, area that is seeing a lot of demand. Apparently, it's for the new Hummer. GM says reservations for the first year production of their electric Hummer Edition 1 sold out within the first 10 minutes of being available. The electric vehicle is due to start production next fall at $112,000. Production on the next edition won't be until fall of 2022. But Mike, as you pointed out, you know, it might be a over $100,000 vehicle, but the deposit was only 100 bucks. Yeah, the cost of, you know, aspirationally owning one of these things is not high at the outset. And I understand why a lot of people would say, why not give this a try? It's, it's definitely attractive across a couple of different levels. We don't know the number uh, of reservations that, that GM has basically taken for this. So what the first year production is. I, but I do see what they're going after. Obviously, very high end. This is not truly mass market. But if you go to any, you know, if you go on the roads and you see the, all the Jeep Wranglers and the Jeep Gladiators out there, those aren't people that are hauling stuff and using it for work. It's kind of a lifestyle vehicle. Right. And if you have the EV part of it, too, it completely fits. Every teenager in my town wants a Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> Mike, right. one more question about GM shares, which over the past week, have done really nicely. I mean, the stock is starting to kind of make a name for itself. Are all of the bets GM is making, including on Nikola, paying off here? I think that at least messaging-wise, the street is able to say that GM is positioned in the right places. They're acknowledging where the future is going to be. But you also have to keep in mind, we have a car buying boom going on right here. Uh, the economy of stuff, durable goods, has been pretty strong. So all those things are working in the stock's favor and coming from an incredibly cheap starting point as well. Yeah, up 13% over the is past exactly week, right. just barely positive. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is what all about positioning. Job? If we've learned anything from Tesla and Nikola, creating a prototype, that's the easy part. Producing this production, especially mass production, that is the hard part. We don't know anything about how many reservations they've had, how they're going to get this production in place. So I think that that's where the hard part comes. And yes, of course, GM is signaling that it wants to be in this market, but we've seen that time and time again in the past without a ton of success. Tesla is still on top.
Yeah, fair enough. I still I think it looks kind of cool. Like if I if I had a reason to get I don't know. I mean it is expensive, but it looks pretty cool. Uh, let's talk about Align Technology because cool. they are having a monster day today. They're the maker of Invisalign, all smiles after beating analyst expectations in the third quarter. The stock is up more than 30% and on pace for its best day since 2006. The CEO said they saw an uptick in consumer engagement from new social media influencers like Charlie D'Amelio. D'Amelio, am I, Julie, am I even saying this right? She's the most followed person on TikTok with 95 million followers and occasionally posts ads for Invisalign like this one where she documented her trip to the dentist to get her Invisalign for the first time. How is this the content that influences or influencers are putting out and it's working? So, Julia, explain so Kelly, this to me. It, it, it's Charlie D'Amelio. She and her sister are very famous on TikTok for the dances that they do. So they're not famous for their teeth, though now they've gotten famous for that. But to me, this is a perfect example of how social media's take is really enabling influencers to take something and go with it and make it go viral. That's obviously a very intimate thing to have someone watch you get Invisalign with the lights and the, the, the whole thing was, was a lot there. So I think that people like to have an extra window into these people who they follow on TikTok and everyone's on Zoom or whether they're video chatting with their friends and family across the country, they're looking at their teeth so much right now. So I think that's gotta be driving this as well as the social media I uh, mean marketing phenomenon that is TikTok. I just love it. I love stuff like this. It's totally fascinating to me. Mike, the shares, as we said, are up 33% yep. today. So I went to, in a line, by the way, a couple years ago, it was like the best stock in the NASDAQ. Absolutely. So I went to look at Smile Direct, which has been a, a tougher IPO, thinking, man, this must be a tough day for them. No, they're up 7.5%. Yeah. Why are they benefiting from yeah, they're coming up? up now, they're not at their highs. I mean, uh, Invisalign, Align Technology is well above its 2018 highs, but really come... Uh, come a long way since the recent lows in Smile Direct. I do think it's probably uh, that latter point that Julia made, which is aesthetics from the neck up seem like they're enjoying a little bit of a boom uh, right now. It's not just teeth. It's, you know, it's cosmetics, it's makeup, it's procedures uh, and things like that. So an unappreciated, perhaps, um, shutdown beneficiary in, these, in this area. Yep. The, the unappreciated 100%. work from home right. play that we never knew we needed. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, before we go, guys, Johnny Ive is the former chief design officer at Apple, of course, now taking his talents to Airbnb to, to design the next generation of their products and services. He was three decades nearly at Apple, worked on devices, wearables, even the company's headquarters itself, Apple Park. Uh, but Deirdre, everyone's kind of scratching their heads, say, how does he really apply his immense talents to a, a website? It's a good question. He was known for his industrial design, right? We just showed some of the most iconic products, but I think that Airbnb has always been this design forward firm. They've really succeeded on the strength of their brand. For example, you go to Airbnb.com to make a booking, whereas I think that case can be made less for Expedia or booking holding. Um, one idea that we floated earlier, perhaps we'll get a logo redesign, Kelly. I had forgotten about this, but back in 2014, when Airbnb did put out its logo that it currently is there. You see it right now. It was a little controversial because of what it suggested. And I will leave that up to you guys as to what you think it suggests. But perhaps I, I have a bigger problem with put. the fact I have a bigger problem with the fact that Johnny Ive is going to go to Airbnb to design a logo. Like I get they're important, but I just for the greater good of society, but, go have him do. I don't know, but something. Something else. But Kelly, if you Perhaps think about how important, it's so important to have, 
Yeah, but for if you think about design and how important it is to suck people to a website and to make the experience good, as Airbnb thinks about expanding just you know into more into these experiences beyond just the focus on the home rentals, the potential is really endless as Airbnb looks at the future right. ahead and what can happen if people are so enjoying the experience on the website that they're going to want to keep you know sort of treating it as their their destination for anything travel related, and I think that's the real potential in changing that experience there. They have something up their sleeve. I look forward to seeing what it is. And if we ever get the IPO, uh, maybe December now, probably 2021. Guys, we'll leave it there. Julia Borson, Michael Santoli, Deirdre Bosa all joining me for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, Intel is trading lower ahead of its earnings, and it's down nearly 13% in the past quarter. Can the 2020 laggard convince investors it's still a chip champion? That's next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Intel is on deck with its earnings after the bell today. It's been a challenging year for the chipmaker. The stock is trailing far behind its competition. NVIDIA is leading the way with a more than 120% gain. AMD, Taiwan Semi, they're up 50% or more. Intel is down 10% since January by comparison. Josh Lipton is here with a closer look at what we can expect. Hi, Josh. So, Kelly, it has not been a good year for Intel bulls. Yes, it has enjoyed a recent bounce here, gaining about 10% in the last month, but it's still down about 20% from its most recent high. And this year, Intel, at least by market cap, losing its crown to NVIDIA. Cowan's Matt Ramsey highlights the central concern here, execution. Intel has stumbled, he says, with its chip manufacturing roadmap, and that has led to product delays. For example, dropping that bombshell last quarter when it announced delays of its first seven nanometer chips. Remember, rival AMD is already selling seven nanometer based chips. Lisa Su's company is taking share and winning over investors. So is it all over for Intel's Bob Swan? Tech analyst Patrick Moorhead doesn't think so. Now, he argues that Swan's company still is in a strong competitive position, dominating the majority of the markets for PC and server chips, two growing markets, and Intel, he says, is moving into new hot markets as well, placing bets in areas such as AI and gaming graphics where it will compete with rivals like NVIDIA. Kelly, back to you. Yep, very much looking forward uh, to this quarter and continuing to watch that battle play out. Josh, thank you. Still ahead, as of last week, more than 20 million people have filed jobless claims since the start of the pandemic. But consumer balance sheets are painting a rosier picture. What's behind the boost to cash flow and where is that cash going? That's next. Welcome back. Low rates, COVID checks, and savings from staying at home means consumers are actually sitting on extra cash right now. New data shows that consumer-free cash flow, that's the money left after paying for food, utilities, taxes, and debts, it hit a new all-time high this week, and it's a big reason my next guest is bullish on dis consumer discretionary stocks. Joining me now is Michael Kantrowitz. He's the chief investment strategist at Cornerstone Macro. Michael, I appreciate you pointing this out. And for investors, where should they be positioned to best take advantage of what's been a surprisingly strong or, or I guess you could say well-positioned consumer here? I think given the fact we've had a recovery now without rates backing up, without inflation rearing its ugly head, we can continue to see a lot of these consumer early cyclical stocks continue to outperform. And so anything from home builders and the housing sector to autos, 
to other consumer durable areas. We think that uh, that have already done really well. We think that'll continue as job employment continues to come back. So some of the names uh, are names we talk about a lot, like Lennar and Lowe's and Tractor Supply. Who else do you think? Yeah. Um, well, so those are names that are ranked attractively in the consumer discretionary sector that fit uh, our preference for a GARP approach today, so growth at a reasonable price. And there's a huge debate on Wall Street now whether you want to be growthy or be, be in the value space. We think you want to be right in the middle uh, right now, and, and that'll allow investors to benefit from companies with good fundamentals, but it's still acknowledge that valuations have become extreme for some of the better companies. So beyond there, again, those sectors of household durables, even some of the travel companies look attractive. But again, of course, you know, COVID remains an overhanging issue there. Uh, and so I think housing specifically can continue to do really well. Even even a company like Home Depot as well uh, fits that mold. Anything in the specialty yeah. retail space does well, looks attractive. Uh, and it, again, it's all about this idea of consumers having more money after they pay their credit cards, their leases, their rental, their mortgage, and energy prices. Uh, in addition to food, all of those costs are historically at such low levels and I can't think of a time where we've had a recovery in employment and have seen mortgage rates continue to fall to new lows. And it's a really unique backdrop. True. But it's a really good backdrop for consumers. And so finally, we, I've seen a lot of surveys about holiday uh, spending falling 7% year on year this year. We know just what a terrible position a lot of lower income Americans hardest hit by the pandemic are. So what would you say to people who say, well, what about those headlines? Yeah, you know, there's absolutely um, still a lot of people unemployed, though we continue to see that gradually get better. Today, we saw un unemployment claims fall below 800,000, which admittedly is still a high number, but it's going in the right direction. And so we, we expect to see upside surprise. Hopefully, D.C. sooner than later will get a stimulus package in order to accelerate the recovery and give uh, consumers more confidence to feel uh, better about spending during that holiday season. So we see a lot of upside surprises. Yeah, and as you said, that includes retail, uh, includes the uh, sort of housing and construction sectors and, and all of those aspects of the consumer wallet. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Michael Kantrowitz of Cornerstone Macro. And speaking of strong housing demand, home sales surged to a more than 14-and-a-half-year high in September, boosted by historically low rates. Existing home sales were up 20% year-on-year to their highest level since 2006. And not only are Americans buying homes, they're also renovating existing ones. Pool reported record results today, saying it benefited from, quote, elevated demand for residential pool products driven by trends influenced by the pandemic. The stock is up 126 percent from its 52-week low. It's at an all-time high today. And Pentair, which makes filtration systems, posted a big earnings beat. The company saying one of its units delivered strong growth due to strength, and you guessed it, the pool business. It's up 134 percent from its 52-week low. And Leslie, which also makes pool equipment, just filed for an IPO. So it's a pool boom and a housing one. That does it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, I'll see you with Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.